Listener Production. What you're inviting someone to do if you're writing music is to be in the place you were when you wrote it and feel what you were feeling at the time you wrote it. And if what you're feeling was true and it was pure, then you're doing a great service for mankind. And that's all we can hope for, isn't it? Hi, I'm Jess Rowe, and this is the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show, a podcast that skips the small talk and goes big and deep. From love to loss and everything in between, I want to show you a different side of people who seem to have it all together in these raw and honest conversations about the things that matter. Kate Sobrano is a singer, songwriter, performer and artist. She is one of our most celebrated voices and songwriters. Kate has just released her 30th album called My Life is a Symphony. I've loved Kate's music since I was a teenager and I've always been drawn to her exuberance, warmth and energy. And I wanted to talk to Kate about where that vibrancy and joy comes from. Kate Sobrano, I see your face and I just light up because you are just such a force and your spirit, your music, your energy. I love it. I want some of it. Hello. Hello. And what a celebration though. Your 30th album, My Life is a Symphony, It is so great. It's almost my producer and I were chatting about it. We grew up listening to your songs and now you've sort of reinvented them to grow with us where we're at in our lives now. I totally feel that. It's all the feels, isn't it? So to stand, can you imagine standing in the middle of an 80-piece plus orchestra and have the feeling of your life being put to music? It's more than I can actually physically handle. (laughs) I just go. I just leave my body. I just go into the room and I'm light years away from that tiny little space that's centre stage. What a sensation for you, because you began singing these songs when you were a teenager. Yes, I've written them often about my experiences, like, for instance, Pash is my first kiss, and it was it was really, really local. I wanted to make it so colloquial to Australia. I was in the place, Westfield Shopping Centre. I had that fabulous fragrance of the Coles cafeteria with hot chips and tomato sauce and the neon lights of brushes, and I've had all of the sounds that were accompanying this epic experience, which was my first kiss, a real kiss. And literally I felt like Amelie where, you know, someone had impacted on me and I was lifted, airlifted off my feet. And then suddenly I could hear a symphony (laughs) and quite literally to hear a symphony now playing it.
When we do get it to the stage, and this is a four-year project, this has been a four years in the making, it will feel as though it's a film that's finally come to fruition after much planning, a lot of arranging and, and producing in advance, and then an unexpected whack of COVID, which gave us all, I think, a greater sense of ourselves, that when we came out the other side, the world of music had very much changed. Orchestras had been quite disparate. You know, a lot of orchestral members had to go off and get second gigs. And these are people that have been studying their whole life to be great at something. And then they've had to defer and do something else. It's a very strange time. 300 plus shows that had to be cancelled and then re-put back on. And me at the other end going, well, I don't feel as a pop artist that I should be at all in pole position because these are blokes who can play Mahler and Beethoven, Tchaikovsky and Debussy. You know, you're wondering, like, how does... But, Kate, (laughs) wait a minute. That's downplaying who you are and your incredible skill set. Don't do that. Well, I guess I sort of do it just to couch it in terms of significance because it's literally... Do you remember seeing a film by Shirley MacLaine called Sweet Charity? Yes. And there was a track that was, If they could see me now, those little friends of mine. La, 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 la. And, you know, she's jumping up and down on the bed. She's actually stripped bare of all artifice and she's just simply saying, this is what I've lived my whole life for. And perhaps... This is what I've been singing those four decades just to find myself here in pole position with the MSO. Oh, hearing you say that, it just gives me goosebumps, Kate, <laughs> to think that here you are now in your full power. Is that how it is for you? Yeah, well, I think we must be of a certain age, but I think I'm older than you because your friend Denise Drysdale and I, we're really good mates. I had to say goodbye to probably our peers, about four of them this last month, of which Renee, Olivia are two of those. There's Glenn, John Farnham's manager, and I mean, literally people that I was planning to live out the rest of my life with. And I'm sure Nisi will feel the same way. So in essence, I do feel like the last of the Mohicans. But after a four-year hiatus of not actually doing what I do best, which is live performance, I did discover different skills within myself that I hadn't ever asked myself for. And you were painting, weren't you? I was. I was demonstrating the experience of being a singer who can't sing. And so you often ask yourself, even I know that in the community with disabilities, it's the same sort of conversation. Well, what will you do? So you don't have that skill there and available. So what are you going to do and where will you find your inspiration? And I'm very moved by that. So one thing was disabled, but another thing was enabled because of it. And I started making these quilts and they were legacy quilts, really. And I hand embroidered all of my song lyrics all around them. And I've been embroidering all of the interior of these things. They are, in fact, my unsung songs. And they will come on tour with me while I go all across the country with this orchestral tour. And and they'll be part of my year's work, actually. And at the end of the year, hopefully I have an exhibition. Because I think I've seen a few photos, magnificent photos of you draped in the quilts. (laughs) Yeah. I thought to myself, when things go into a space we can't control, what are the things that are most grounding? They are family, food, comfort, the hearth, 
and nature. You know, essentially, if all things were to go, you know, pear-shaped tomorrow, we would all have to go back to some basic skills, how to survive, you know, keep ourselves warm and keep the family close together. And I could just see that this was this sort of, you know, this symbolic gesture that I was doing. Which, and actually, as it turns out, it's, I think it's what I've been doing as a singer my whole life is to try to keep people together. So the recording part of my career has been a means to an end. What the end is, is always to have an audience in a room and that we know by our shared experience that we exist and that we are here and that we are corporally engaged in this conversation together. And it's not just something you can't, no, no amount of money can buy that conversation, you know? It's so moving because it, it's that moment in time, as you say, I love that idea of it being a communication between you and the audience. And it's something that you're sharing. It's not just one way because you're, you're performing, but then the audience giving back to you and vice versa, it continues. I think that's probably where the part of me comes alive most is when I'm inviting an audience to participate, and I often tell them, and I say this lovingly, but I'm like, you do realise that without you, I am but a fart in the dark because it's, it's the principle <laughs> of a bear should shit in the woods. It's the same thing, right? You've got this, you've got a witness, and I am a witness to their experience. And I think from COVID, and I'm sure you'll agree, I think what people are wanting now are really real experiences that they can immerse themselves in, feel it on them and ask of them to feel things within themselves. You know, we couldn't touch each other. We couldn't sing with each other. We couldn't stand near each other, hold our children or say goodbye to our loved ones. It was, you know, a disaster of the humanity of existence. And what do we have to do as artists now, I think, is to try to repair that and we need to do it fast and vigorously. So the orchestra is perfect because it's big and it's loud and it's immersive and, and I'll be big and loud and private and share many stories about my inner thoughts. So let's talk about some of those inner thoughts. I first of all want to chat to you about young Kate, the teenager on stage looking super cool and just oh, rocking it out. I'll tell you, it couldn't have been more diametrically opposed to that image because young Kate, very shy, Enormously short-sighted, couldn't see a foot in front of my face, terribly bad skin and very anxious socially because I just wanted so much to be liked that I couldn't actually comfortably sit with any of my favourite friends of whom I classify Michael Hutchins, a great friend of all of that space, you know, in that time, I just couldn't hold my shit. I felt so uncool. And the only time I could ever feel that I was cool was when I would exit her skin and walk into stage skin. And from that place, I just let myself rip. And I would just take whatever was going on in that day or the day before, and I would change the narrative on stage and correct it. She wasn't feeling those things. She wasn't being, she's just pure primal passion. And thank you for thinking I was cool. I really wasn't cool. <laughs> oh, I wanted to be you because I remember I would crank up your songs when I was getting ready to go out with my girlfriends and I, I had terrible skin and I would, 
I read somewhere in Dolly magazine that if you used black eyeliner, you could just turn them into beauty spots. But then I ended up having like 20 beauty spots all over my face because of my acne. And then I did too. You know, and I'd wear one of those wonderful tight black dresses that you'd be rocking in your film clips as well. This is actually how you were born, you were fired. And I feel that way too. And I say it to my daughter, who's having a very similar experience through puberty, that your experience and your interest, because you've always been very social and interested in other people, as long as I've known you, I think I am too. And I think that's because it was a way to be seen outside of your physical form. It was like, if I see you, then maybe you'll just see me and not this. And... I don't know. I'd like to think that a a better part of me was made in that baptism. Oh, without a doubt. You are so wise, Kate. How did you get wise? I'm actually just old, which is really good. (laughs) I'm happy with old. I'm happy. So then Mm. that, as you say, the skin that you were in outside of being on stage, has that now, I would imagine, that's morphed into you being comfortable in your skin now? I have the great luxury of having a child who's now 19 and also in the same business as me. She's a beautiful singer, very, very different from me. But we had a shared experience where we went back to the studio where I recorded Brave 35 years ago and she had composed some music and was vocalising in the centre of one of the tracks we were recording for the album and then came to do BVs on Brave. And I looked across at her from the place where I was and she was standing where I'd actually been recording the first version of the song and it was like, I don't know how to describe it other than sonic terms. I'll try, okay? When you're putting down a soundscape for a film, if there's a buzzsaw in the back or there's a lawnmower or a plane flies overhead, they can actually still film that and then later in post They reproduce the same sound and did you know it cancels it off the recording? No, I didn't. Mm. It's incredible. I don't know really the science behind it, but it's if you manage to find the exact same sound, you can actually cancel it out and it's gone. And so I think of all the pressures and the depressions and the anxieties and the social... When we saw one another, to me, it's like it cancelled it out and now I feel like you know, this experience of brave and doing this 40 years later, I have so much more now to give others. And in fact, I'm taking on a few people. Um, I've been mentoring a few artists for now 10 and 15 years apiece, singers, and they'll be joining me on stage in Melbourne for a couple of the songs because I want them to feel what 40 years feels like with an orchestra and see themselves and really, you know, manifest that and my daughter will be joining me as well. Oh, I want to hear more then. So Gypsy joined you in backing vocals for Mm. Brave. Yeah. Like how do you handle that in terms of like, are you then like her boss, so to speak? Like if you're thinking, oh, is she sounding as good as she could? Or how do you manage that? Let me just start by telling you I was raised by a master in martial arts who is in fact the highest ranked of his style in the world. And so his peers were Bruce Lee and 
a great prophet, actually, who, if you ever read either he or Muhammad Ali, I don't know what they were drinking at the time in that water where they were, but that stuff was insane. Those men were so incredibly self-affirmative and for people, they spoke for the people. My dad was similarly a very, very useful man because he'd demonstrate his care by teaching it and instructing others to care for themselves. Does that make sense? Yes. So with Gypsy as a singer, from the minute she could open her mouth and sing, I honoured her with the job that she could be self-correcting and that if she were to go into any space, she would still meet another Kate or a mum who would say, you're either in tune or you're not. I wasn't that woman that would sit there and kind of just say, because it was the the sweetest thing to do. Instead, I'd say, well, if you're here and you're determined to do this, I'm going to tell you the truth. You need to tweak the tuning on that. So just make that a little stronger. And that little note, you'll need some more air. So I'm very informative and I allow her to get that and then she improves it. And she listens. So she takes that on board. I mean, I think about my daughters are a little bit younger. They're 14 and 16 and they often don't take instruction quite as well as that. Oh, well, it, no, well, I have to say, Jess, that the primary difference with it, because that's not a parenting role, that's simply being a peer at that point. She's already nominated she wants to sing. I wanted her to know that if she wants to be in that space, then she will be confronted with an element of quality control that's going to be fierce and it's going to be fast and it has to be done because people are paying for that experience. With parenting, I let her get away with everything. (laughs) (laughs) That makes me feel better. No, no, no. I'm completely indulgent. I mean, honestly, I'm only one of them. Can you imagine? It's like, oh, no. But as a professional, that's why I was saying my dad informed me how to behave in that space. As a parent, I've been informed by my grandmother, Kathleen, and my grandmother said, you can't spoil a child with love. And so I indulged her and have indulged her. (laughs) But to me, that's so beautiful. That is such a great saying. You can never love someone too much. I know. I agree. And that's not indulging. That's the stuff of life. And that gives people a sense, I think, of security and knowing, hey, I'm loved unconditionally, so I'm then safe to then go and pave my own way and if I make mistakes, it's okay because I'm still loved. Yes, that's right. That's beautiful. And actually, if I was going to tell you something that I feel music, the role it plays in society is that it's that feeling of love that is without words. That's what I feel it is. It nurtures a part of us that is repaired through that kind of love. It does, it's a love without words. And I think like you, what you just mentioned, if you can express that in the way you live and you you set an example of that, then you are in essence, I don't know, you are being your own song. Yes, you're being your own song, Kate. You need to write a song saying you are being your own song. Well, it's actually, I was thinking, I, this this sounds like a funny thing, like meaning like I set this up, but I didn't actually mean to do this. There is a song on the album called Louis Song, and my brother Phil and his wife Angela are about to have a baby. Now they've been trying for a long time and they've taken a, a great deal of effort through IVF over a period of six years, maybe even more, I'm not sure, and they're five weeks away from having a baby. Now, Helen, who was my oldest brother's first wife, when she had a baby and it was the first of the clan, 
We all sat, I don't know what on earth possessed us, this bunch of rock and rollers. We all sat in the room with her, waiting for her to have this baby, which, (laughs) you know, we all imagined was sort of like ours. Louis was ours. Louis was the first of all the clan and he literally felt like we were all having the baby. Of course, Helen doesn't see it that way. (laughs) We talk about it a lot. And in the verse... It says, Louis, your life has just begun and your song is about to be written. So listen closely to the choir and let your song sing, let your song ring. Let your life bring you everything just by being and by knowing that this song is you. And that was the song I gave Louis in gratitude for letting us all parent him. What a gift. What a gift that you have given him, but also that you give all of us. You have written in your memoir quite a lot of stuff in there that I know that your husband, Lee Rogers, was saying at the time. He was like, oh, do we really want all of this in there? Yeah. Tell us a bit about that kind of rock and roll life and what that was like during that time. Well, I think I'm going to write a better book soon. It's no diss on the gentleman who ghostwrote that book for me. I don't know why I deferred the power of writing. I am a songwriter. I should have just written it myself, actually. I would have changed it and put it in a voice where I I probably could understand why. Rather than just the detailed events, I would have couched it showing the circumstances. And I think a lot of people, and you'll agree, a lot of people make choices because they're trying to solve a problem. And whatever problem that is, is so unique to their experience that you couldn't even invent it if you tried. And then the outcome is simply, it's just the sad truth of what the person tried to do in an effort to solve a problem. And a lot of the book in there and the things that were said and done were one version of how that appeared. But I actually now, I I don't actually accept that the version is, is authentic enough, so I'm rewriting that. So what would you, how would you rewrite it then? What would you say? I'd start with the times, and I'd start with the problems that a person in that time and with those very unique circumstances was trying to face and confront at the time. For instance, it wasn't anybody's fault. It was wonderful that at 15 I became a star, but there are complexities to becoming famous young. Uh, What do you do when suddenly you feel that you're not famous? (laughs) And you're only halfway through your life. Talk to a footy player at the third stroke of their existence. That's the end of a fully-fledged professional career. I listened in awe at Colin Hay at the APRA Awards and Colin was explaining how they had this blooming nuclear success and then suddenly it had reached its ceiling and it just stopped And there was no rhyme or reason for it. There were circumstances, yes, unwellness within the band, you know, and he had to find psychologically how he would recover and reform his existence from that moment to zero and build his way back up to where he is today. And he said that the person that he's ended up becoming is the person that he always wanted to be. Which is life, isn't it? And we have to, though, go through, I think, all of that kind of crap and hardship to get to the person that we are today. Indeed. 
And let's all pray and hope that that person we are today is the person you set off to want to become and is the person you want to be. The person that you are now, Kate, I mean, I loved, you posted on social media recently about menopause, where you were talking about the thoughts that come in the middle of the night, the where, the what ifs, the why nots, the should have we have done things. Explain that to me. Are there some things that you think, oh, what if, or I should have? I think menopause is a very abstract concept. It's something that I've yet to understand. I don't know why it exists or for what purpose other than to tell the world that you no longer can enjoy wine, sex or exercise because it seems to be that any of those things provoke... <laughs> some kind, it's like if you were in nature and David Attenborough was describing, now this animal right now is repelling all partners and mates for reasons inexplicable to man. I don't really understand. You know, it's just like one minute you're just loving and enjoying being in close proximity and the next minute it's like, don't touch me. I'm like, you know, I've gone from being like the hugger to being the, you know, in a, in a 2,000 plus autograph sign, it just, please, don't, could you just, I just need a... Some space. <laughs> and then I started making my own fans and I, it's inexplicable to me. I mean, it's just like, it's just the world's worst joke. I don't get it. <laughs> um, so what am I learning from this and what am I taking away? I think that dread that one gets in the middle of the night I think it should, uh, if you if you can, should be health, healthily, if that's such a word, ignored. And you should try in all efforts, if you can, to just change something in that moment, find whatever that is. You so, probably have great advice on that. Oh, but for you though, what is that You're not menopausal yet, are yes, you? Yes, I am. I now do, and I love it, I rub gel in my arms yeah. and I take a tablet and it's great. It's changed. It's made such a difference for me. I'm on the brink, trust it, me. Oh. I'm on the, I'm, I actually, I've listened and spoken to a lot of different people. We'll see how far I can get. I'm with you. I think that you really need to speak to someone you trust and I think you really need to, because these, as I said, when I say change it, I'm not saying that that's actually even possible because menopause is such an enigmatic. Uh, well, it's part of us. I mean, it's part of what happens to women, isn't it? I'm 52 just... and my mum, I was talking to my mum about, oh, I'm so irritable and I'm not an irritable person. No. I'm really, I'd be getting hot and I couldn't sleep and tossing and turning and that waking up in the yes. middle of the night. And my mum said, Go and talk to your doctor. I'm, yes. You know, it's menopause. Yes. There's a way through this. And I did, and it's made, obviously it's a personal thing. People choose what's right for them, but it has helped me enormously. I feel well, just a lot more sounds even, magnificent. Kate. That sounds magnificent. And if I'm desperate to go and have a little bit of a crack at that because I thought I was managing it well. But you don't need to manage it on your own, but, I think. Well, this is the point. There's a point where you're thinking like it's something that's like fundamentally understood. But I told you, I actually say it's enigmatic because sometimes it's not there. And then you go, I'm through. <laughs> it's done. And, and then it comes back. And then it comes back. So I think it's time we just have a little look and to see how I want to live out the rest of <laughs> these next few years. And And I have a lot to do. So your husband, Lee... He's a director. Is he still your manager? 
Yeah, we worked together. It's sort of like was go. I want to say we don't like to discuss it like management because we're more like a multimedia partnership. He came in it as a director and a producer. So he's more like a film producer, actually. I'm the artistic director and the creative. And we become this department where we, you know, we work that way. And when we put it in those terms, it doesn't cause that rub that I know that you were alluding to there, that you'd think, ooh, artist management, that doesn't feel good. But at the moment, what we have is this really great team and we share our skills and move them around. Isn't that good? So, I mean, it works for you both. Yeah. Yeah, it does. I mean, we got better at it because we hosted and ran a broadcast from home through COVID. And look, it's tense. And I'm a very potent, vivid Latin girl. And my husband's a very placid, pragmatic Northern Beaches boy. (laughs) We really shouldn't work. He's an Aries. I'm a scorpion. I mean, you could, anyone will tell you, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> but if life's taught me one thing, if you want something and then you can architect your dreams based on the house you want to live in. There are houses that you could move into because they were said so, they were good for you, but you could effectively be the architecture of your own home. Again, that's such a beautiful image. I've read, Kate, that you've described yourself as exhausting for people, <laughs> for people around you. <laughs> it's true because I seem to have a, an endless supply of things to do. Like I was raised from people that, you know, do something, go and occupy yourself, entertain yourself, travel, go and find things. My grandfather was a lover of trains, planes, buses, and, you know, he would read railway timetables for entertainment. And so it was an endless sort of source of, you know, you couldn't just say I'm bored or I've got nothing to do. Well, go and find something to do, you know. And so I've just made an art form of that. And other people around me, who they actually understand that there's there's a time when you can actually relax. <laughs> I find I'd rather stab myself in the eye than go on holiday. Really? <laughs> yeah. So how do you relax? Do you stop? I have stations. I think maybe even COVID gave me a great excuse for something I've always done. Like I call it cake droppings because I will rotate my system of creativity to different things. And there's, you know, a dressing room where I'll design an outfit or or work out what I'm going to do for the next five gigs ahead and I'll play in that space. And then I'll go to the music room and the music room where I go to write and then study piano and and just play and, and jam with my friends. And then I go out into the studio where the quilts are there waiting for me to just go back in and start, you know, and I just do this on rotation all day and then I go off and do gigs and then come back and then I just go straight into this space. That's been a good a good way because now I don't have to invite my whole village to have to participate. I can just simply do those things too on my own. So the child is able to play on her own now these days too. So we're good. <laughs> we're and, okay. And you can nurture that creativity, that spirit that you have within yeah. yourself and that's powerful too. I think it is, yes. I think that if you know that that is what you do and you're content with the idea that your creation is so is so original to you. I mean, in the end of the day, at the end of the day, rather, you, you'd like to know that the things you've left behind, no one else could have made but you. And that's what 
That's what we do. (laughs) And you do that so beautifully. You talk as well a lot about family and how close you are as a family. Mm. What does family mean to you and for you? Well, I'd like to think that, I mean, family, it does change when you get married. I always thought we'd live in the same house and we'd all just get married and stay there. I don't know. It's just this weird. (laughs) But then one day we all just went poof. And when you say family means a lot to me, I've found that the families, we've become separate whilst still very much apart, but we are like a global community. We each of us own our own little planets over here. My brother's doing very, very well with his wife. She's in marketing and together the two are like, they are actually like Lee and I in terms of their creative teamship. And my eldest brother, similarly, he runs a whole chain of karate schools for kids and he and his wife run that. And now Lee and now Gypsy now too, she's starting to get into that space where she's going to require someone who understands her industry well. She's a unique little, she's just, her music is, wow, it's celestial. It's amazing. What is it like too at the stage that I suppose Gypsy's at at 19? She's really spreading her wings. She's taking off, she's making her way in the world. Mm. How do you make sense of that and reconcile that in terms of either wanting her close or being able to let her go? I think that's a conversation you and I will have in 10 years' time and then you'll tell me how it went too. I think that's a really like it's, it's, it happens. It happens, but it happens slow enough to be able to deal with that. And I think that it, it'll instruct you just in the same way that having a baby, you know, I, I, by the end of my, I don't know what your childbirthing experience was like, but by then I'm like, oh, just save the baby. I'm checking out. I simply can't do this. <laughs> There's no way I'm going to survive. I'm not going to survive. <laughs> Such a drama queen I am. And I had this feeling, you know, in my child being an only one that I wasn't going to be able to let her go. But I find that she vaulted independently out from my arms before I even thought of it. Just she was off and running. And who am I to stop a bird in flight? It's nature. And she's flying and she's up there. Now, if the bird was hopping and couldn't get up off the ground and needed assistance, like that would be great because then I could just like foster and love and nurture and, you know, get there right down on all fours. But she sprouted her wings and she's off. And I also think it's almost, it's a series of letting goes, as you say. It is. It's it's those gradual things. That's right. From the very beginning, from the moment they're born. That's right. That's right. I actually... I didn't recognise that it would feel this way, obviously, when I was growing up and leaving my home and leaving my mum and my grandmother. I'd often go overseas, you know, from the age of 16 and 17, I was travelling a lot. And I had no sense of their sadness or, or loss. I'm the youngest and the only girl. I had no sentimentality about it at all. So I don't know why I would expect that I'd feel this way, but I do. I feel sentimental about it. I often actually see other people and their newborns and it ages me to think I'll never have another newborn in my arms. And so I paint a lot, a lot of this experience. In fact, I've got like a lot of my paintings are, are almost like a shrine to my reproductive system. <laughs> <laughs> the love of and the loss of. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> to show you one time. 
I love you, Oh my God. I love you, That's gorgeous. That is so gorgeous. <laughs> but the... <laughs> oh, I'm just thinking about these paintings. And I know. Oh my God. When you see it, it's it's quite self-evident what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. And finally, what I do want to talk to you about is spirituality. Yeah. Because yeah. I know you're a Scientologist and I've yeah. read how you've said that its teachings have played a big role in shaping who you are today. Right. In what way? It's interesting, Jess. I don't talk as much as I would like to about the subject because I... I feel unfairly burdened by the idea that, like, I'm the poster child for the church. And I don't think that that's actually... I'm not a celebrity. I'm an artist. They're quite two different things for me. And that my private thoughts about spirituality, it can't help but polarise people because they have their own vision or of what religion or spirituality means for them. When we put it in the in terms of, and I very so I don't actually discuss it when I'm usually doing music interviews, but you're a very broad spectrum communicator, and so with you I'll tell you this much: I feel that in the world there has to be a part of us that feels there's something that is kind and eternally hopeful, and whatever you want to call that thing, it's in all of us to be those two things. And if we don't continue to work to be both kind and hopeful, then we will see the end of civilization as we know it. And so that's a very existential conversation. And it is, you could say, in the realm of religion, but people don't want to call it that. But I think that all the great religions, all they've ever really sought, if they were truly religious in nature, is that they were kind and that there was hope for men. And you are an incredibly kind person, Kate. Oh, not always. Really? (laughs) No, there's always... See, this is where I I enlist help. And anyone should, if they feel that they could be better at being kinder and that their despair wasn't drowning them in a sea of sorrow. Because there's a lot to be sad for in this world, Jess. There's a lot. And if you're in the arts and you're feeling it, and each and every day you're an empath, which you are, and I am, then how do you hope for things? How do you do that? It takes a lot of self-discipline and a lot of work. And I think we all need to work harder at doing that and discover where the hope is within us. So how do you do that then? Where do you find it? Oh, it, that and that is another, we, we'll go into another conversation another time about that. But I can tell you it's it's in music and, and people find it in music every day. I think that the more honest a person is as a musician, then the more truth we get. And they, like Beethoven once said, you know, what you're inviting someone to do if you're writing music is to be in the place you were when you wrote it and feel what you were feeling at the time you wrote it. And if what you're feeling was true and it was pure, then you're doing a great service for mankind. And that's all we can hope for, isn't it? Well, Kate, you've done that because you have given me so much hope and not only me, so many women and men, but I think of women of sort of my generation, you exude, as I said at the start, love and joy, generosity of spirit, generosity of heart, and thank you for reimagining the songs that were the soundtracks of my teenage years and many Mm. other teenage years again. And we can 
you know, travel through those moments in the past, but also now and who we're going to be becoming. And I think that is what is exciting. What is next for you and Mm. what is next, I think, for women of a certain age, because I I love it and I think we need to embrace that and you embody that. So thank you, Kate. Well, I think you need to author that book, Becoming. I think that's a great title. It's a great place to start. Thank you. Gee, it's (laughs) wonderful chatting with you, Kate. Thank you for your time. No worries. Thanks for having me, darling. Thank you. Oh, so much love. Oh, my goodness. I just walk away from that chat feeling lighter, thinking about hope and thinking about what really matters. And I tell you what, I also can't wait to see (laughs) Kate's paintings that she's talking about. I think that really will be quite something to behold. Now, Kate's 30th album, My Life is a Symphony, it is so beautiful. It does give you goosebumps. It is a breathtaking celebration of her songwriting, featuring her most iconic songs and personal favourites from across her four-decade recording career. Can you believe that? That amount of time in the business. And these songs, they've been reimagined with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. There really is something for everyone in this beautiful album. And if you want to catch Kate in concert, head to her website, katesobrano.com, and there are tour dates there. For more big conversations like this one with Kate, follow the Jess Rowe Big Talk Show podcast. It means you will never, ever miss an episode. Now, I reckon you have someone in your life who will love this conversation. So reach out, share it with them. And if you love this episode, I think you will really enjoy my chat with Danny Minogue. What sparks joy? If you start asking yourself that in everything that you do, from your work to what's around you, it's there. All those feelings are there. They tell you what you should be doing and you've just, you've got to follow them, even even though sometimes on paper you go, oh... (laughs) The Jess Rowe Big Talk Show is hosted by me, Jess Rowe. Executive producer, Nick McClure. She's a wonderful leopard lady. Audio imager, Nat Marshall. Supervising producer, Sam Kavanagh. Until next time, remember to live big. Life is just too crazy and glorious to waste time on the stuff that doesn't matter. Listener.